Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Craig Blomberg. Dr. Blomberg is known around the world as the expert in the validity of the Gospels and the New Testament documents. He is the Distinguished Professor of the New Testament at Denver Seminary right here in Colorado. He's also authored numerous books, including The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, An Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, Jesus and the Gospels, An Introduction and Survey, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, Making Sense of the New Testament, and many other books. Dr. Blomberg, thank you so much for being on The God Solution this morning with us. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the field of apologetics? I was raised in western Illinois in a Lutheran family, part of the old Lutheran Church in America that would now be part of the larger ELCA. Unfortunately, in the uh, turbulent late 60s, when I was confirmed, our succession of younger pastors that we had were much more interested in issues of social justice than in what I have since come to understand is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I won't say that they didn't proclaim it, but I will say that for whatever reason, I didn't hear it until uh, a friend of mine in high school invited me to a campus life club. And it really was through that organization and then in college years through Campus Crusade for Christ that I came to understand evangelical Christianity and the need for personal relationship with Jesus. And also, bearing more directly on your question, came to realize the, the polarization in the Christian world as well as in the scholarly world uh, between those individuals who believed the Bible was trustworthy and historically accurate versus those who picked and chose which parts of Scripture seemed to speak to them and to contemporary issues that concerned them, but on the whole did not think that a majority of the seemingly historical material in the Bible actually happened or happened at all in the way that the Bible narrates it. That's really what piqued my interest. It was in college going to a school out of the Lutheran tradition that I had been raised in, but having this very uh, skeptical approach to the scriptures presented to me as the only intellectually responsible approach which I quickly discovered was not true as I dug in the library and local bookstores and found very scholarly works that presented alternative understandings. I thought at one point that I might want to be a high school math teacher and, in fact, had a year-long career doing that (laughs) after college, but quickly realized that God was calling me to seminary and to a teaching career in the whole area of biblical studies. I think a lot of us are thankful that you that you stuck with the apologetic <laughs> field rather than, than teaching yeah, math. Yeah, me too. Nothing against math teachers. Gordy Herrick is probably listening, and he's a math teacher here at Fort Lewis College, and so we love math teachers, but I'm glad you picked the field you did. So many students on campus today have that same skeptical perspective that you entered mm-hmm. college with. They don't trust the Bible because they've heard arguments like the telephone game argument. It's probably one that you mm-hmm. heard as a freshman in college. Briefly tell us why that argument is wrong and why the New Testament is trustworthy. The ancient Mediterranean cultures were cultures of 
oral tradition rather than dependence on the written word. Only a minority of people learned to read and write, yet these were not unintelligent people, and they cultivated to a degree that is astonishing by uh, contemporary standards the ability to memorize large amounts of material, especially at very young ages, especially when chanted or put to music or rhythm. And so the problem with the telephone game, which for folks who may not know what you're referring to, is the idea that traditions in either Old or New Testament were passed along by word of mouth, much like someone who whispers to a child at a party a long and complex statement, and then that child is asked to whisper what he or she uh, thought they heard to the next person and so on down the line, and we all laugh at how garbled it is at the end. These were cultures that prided themselves on being able to preserve accurately at times for centuries traditions that were deemed sacred to them. They were not whispered. They were regularly repeated out loud. There were multiple people in any community who knew them, and if a speaker or a reciter of the tradition erred in any significant way, they would be corrected. It's just a completely anachronistic model to attach to ancient oral tradition, really, in any culture. As for the reliability of scripture more generally, I don't know of any brief way to address that, <laughs> other than perhaps with respect to the Gospels to refer people to a book I've had the privilege of writing and then updating. A second edition came out in 2007 with InterVarsity Press called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. Yeah, I was reading that a little bit last night, and it's a phenomenal resource. I would encourage you to buy the historical reliability of the Gospels for tons of different arguments that would confirm why you can trust the New Testament in general, and specifically the Gospels. So Bart Ehrman tells us that there are over 400,000 errors in the New Testament. Our listeners probably remember hearing a show a while back called Ignorance Interrupted, where we discussed a lot of Bart Ehrman's claims, and we even dealt with that one. What would you say is wrong with his claim? And you could even touch on the quantity and quality of the New Testament documents if you want. Sure. The first thing you have to realize is that that comes out of a book that deals with textual criticism so that he is not talking about errors of content or of fact. The context in which Bart Ehrman makes that statement, it deals with the process of copying parts or all of the New Testament in nearly 6,000 different manuscripts, ranging from a fragment of a few verses to uh, an entire New Testament. So we're not talking about errors of fact or of content, but where there were changes, either accidental or occasionally intentional, in the process ranging from the 2nd through the 15th centuries in the copying of Greek manuscripts. All statistics, of course, have to be put in a context to help us understand them. If we simply use a very ballpark average and say there are 6,000 manuscripts, if there are 400,000 changes, that averages to 24 per manuscript. If one then analyzes what kinds of changes those are, the vast majority simply have to do with spelling, alternate ways of rendering a given word, or the kinds of variations that 
would be introduced if you heard words pronounced aloud, so that, as is true in modern Greek, even more so than in ancient Greek, uh, several vowels or diphthongs in different words can be pronounced alike. There were changes where a letter accidentally dropped out, especially if it had been duplicated and the scribe only copied it once, or doubled if it created wording that made sense when the scribe accidentally copied one letter twice. The vast majority, in other words, of all these changes have absolutely nothing to do with the meaning of the text and modern editions of the Greek New Testament called over by scholars of all theological persuasions very carefully usually limit the number of textual variants that affect the content to any degree and that are at all debated as to what was original to maybe about 1,200 different issues. Go then to an English translation that includes uh, the most significant textual variants in a footnote or in the margin someplace, and that number shrinks to about 400, sometimes less than one per page of a printed English New Testament. Readers that are curious about the nature of these can read them for themselves, and very occasionally there are uh, very interesting differences, but it's also important to say that no doctrine of Christianity hangs on any debated or disputed text. Upwards of 99% of the text is secure beyond what law courts would call a reasonable shadow of a doubt, and therefore... Uh, Yes, there are 400,000 differences scattered over 6,000, almost 6,000 manuscripts. But let's talk about what they are and how significant they are. So what about the Gnostic Gospels? I was talking with a friend earlier this summer, and he said, well, isn't it true that the Gospel of Thomas is just as reliable as the Gospels that we have, and we can't believe the Gospels we have because the Gospel of Thomas says something totally different than they do? What about that and other Gnostic Gospels? Are they trustworthy? Why or why not? And why aren't they included in Scripture? I'm guessing very strongly that the person you were talking to never actually read the Gospel of Thomas because it doesn't sound like he's actually aware of its contents. There are a variety of documents that date from the 2nd through 5th centuries, none of them nearly as old as the New Testament Gospels that are all 1st century documents. But none of these later documents called Gospels is a prose narrative of the birth and major events and death and resurrection of Jesus. A few of them, which tend not to be Gnostic at all, read very much like someone dying of curiosity to fill in the gaps in the uh, New Testament record with very fanciful speculation about Jesus the child prodigy, or his hidden adolescent years, or what he did when he descended to hell, and such. But the Gnostic Gospels, so-called because Gnosticism was an early 2nd through 5th century amalgamation of Christian and Jewish and Greek thought that sharply divided the material and immaterial worlds, and believed that anything that was made of matter was inherently evil and sinful. None of the Gnostic Gospels is a connected prose account of the life of Christ. What they are 
and most of them are quite short, are collections of sayings or discourses of Jesus, so-called, that he supposedly gave to one or a small group of his followers secretly after his resurrection. And they present a very different philosophy or take on life, such that you really have to choose, do you believe that this world and everything material is inherently evil and the only kind of liberation that people can look for is freedom from bondage to the body and therefore that in this life the main option for believers is to buffet the body to be an ascetic, to deny normal bodily appetites. Celibacy becomes an ideal. Fasting plays a very strong role in Gnosticism. It is extremely anti-Semitic, believing that the uh, God, Yahweh, Lord God of the Old Testament, was not the original creator God, but an inferior God that Jesus came to enlighten us about and replace as the more direct representative with God. And Gnosticism is also a worldview that denies the true humanity of Jesus. He wasn't really God incarnate, because that would mean that God took on something that was inherently evil, which can't be. The Gnostic Gospels also say very disparaging things about women, the most famous of which perhaps is the final and 114th saying in the Gospel of Thomas that you alluded to, Mm -hmm. in which Simon Peter supposedly asks Jesus how Mary, we're not told which Mary, many people have thought it was Mary Magdalene, but it might even be Mary the mother of Jesus, could enter the kingdom of his father since she was a woman. And Jesus replies, I will make her as a male because every woman who makes herself male will be able to enter the kingdom of my father. Gnostics often believed in the myth of androgyny, that we were created as an undifferentiated sexless being, and that is what one day we will be restored to. So really, the only people that can say that Thomas or any other Gnostic gospel has a large segment of material that gives us a a true picture of Jesus are the ones who've never actually read it or studied it and are simply reporting hearsay. It's interesting that in the 90s, the famous Jesus seminar that voted and was widely in the news on all of the sayings and events in the four canonical Gospels and in the Gospel of Thomas and found only about 18% of the sayings and deeds of Jesus in all five Gospels as closely corresponding to what he actually did or said. Even they only selected a half dozen or so passages out of the Gospel of Thomas to add to our database of what we know about Jesus with any confidence. And they in no way altered the material picture that we have of Jesus from the four Gospels. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango, or KDUR.org online. Thank you so much for listening. Even though Dan Brown was writing fictionally about some of these different things. A lot of people have taken things that he wrote in the Da Vinci Code and almost believed it is true. That's very true. It's sad because on the first page of his book, he makes the claim that all references to ancient people 
and places and events in the book are true, either that itself is part of the book's fiction or he's simply lying. I don't know which, but the only statement in all of the Da Vinci Code about the first 500 years of Christian history that I've been able to find that in fact is true is that Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. Everything else is fiction. So it's easy to see why the Gospel of Thomas, some of the Gnostic Gospels, some of those other works were not included in the canon or in the Bible that we have today. There are mythological stories written much later than the Gospels. What I would right. like to ask you is why did the books that we have in the Bible today make it in? And basically, I guess if you could touch on it, who wrote the New Testament Gospels? The four names that have uniformly been ascribed to them throughout the history of the church, beginning from the very early 2nd century, are indeed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's quite possible that those titles were not part of the original manuscripts, since there wouldn't have been any need to call all of them the gospel according to so-and-so until there was a fourfold collection and people wanted to differentiate one gospel from another. And unlike, say, the letters of Paul, there's no place in the actual text of the Gospels where there is a claim for authorship. But neither is there, there any competition in the ancient testimony where we have a parallel example among the epistles of a document that was written without any actual authorship claim within the text, namely the epistle to the Hebrews. You find a very lively discussion among Christian writers in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and numerous proposals being put forward as to who the author may have been. That is simply altogether lacking with respect to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only slight uncertainty is one piece of testimony about John that, depending on how you read it, could be taken as distinguishing the Apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, from a disciple of his, also named John, who may have been uh, an elder in the early 2nd centuries. It's not likely that the early church would have selected names like Matthew, Mark, and Luke to ascribe authorship to if there wasn't solid reason for doing so, simply because of who those individuals were. Mark is a fairly minor character on the pages of the New Testament, best known for deserting Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Luke is barely known at all except for his appearance at the end of a few epistles among the people Paul lists in giving his greetings and refers to as his beloved physician. Matthew was one of the twelve and hence in the inner apostolic circle, but as a converted tax collector, not one of the top eight or nine you probably would have picked first if you were trying to lend credibility and authority to a document. It's interesting to compare that with the Gnostic Gospels that tend to be assigned to people with more to be said for them, like Philip, like Mary, like Nicodemus, and numerous others. Having said all that, it is certainly true that there is a scholarly debate as to whether those four men did, in fact, write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we've come to know them. But even where people doubt that and think it was some other anonymous first century follower of Jesus, the key point is it was first century. These are people who could interview as 
the author of the Gospel of Luke says he did, eyewitnesses of the events that are described. That cannot be said of the compilers of any of the subsequent apocryphal or Gnostic documents. And so that has something to do with why we have the books that we have in our New Testament and more broadly in the Bible that we That's have today. one of the key criteria, um, the question of authorship, and the other two that the early church used uh, in its conversations, beginning already in the second century and culminating in the fourth, was that these were works that did not emerge out of just one sect or one small wing of Christianity, but were quickly circulated throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, wherever the church had spread, and were found to be widely relevant and useful with timelessly applicable teaching. They were also deemed to be orthodox or consistent with the earliest stages of apostolic tradition, of that which circulated by word of mouth by Jesus' first followers, and they were deemed to be consistent with and often showing the fulfillment of Old Testament teaching, while not convincing all Jews, and after a while not convincing a majority of Jews, they were nevertheless very Jewish documents from the beginning, and made the claims that Christianity was the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel, and hence Christians, as they added this New Testament to the existing Hebrew scriptures, believed they were doing so in good faith, not creating something that was an alternative to Judaism in the way the Gnostics did. Let's talk a little bit about the Gospels. Are they myth or reality, and why? If by myth you mean something that, by definition, is historically false, if by myth you mean something, as is often the case with Greco-Roman myths we may study in high school or college at some point, stories about the actions of gods or goddesses who may or may not interact with humans but who never take truly human form themselves, then the Gospels are nothing like myth in that sense. There are clearly parts of Scripture that by their very literary form or genre are illustrative stories, the parables of Jesus being the most well-known example, that are not intended to communicate things that happen, but to teach truths about God and his ways with humanity. To say that the Gospels are historical doesn't commit us to saying that Jesus had a particular prodigal son in mind or a good Samaritan in mind. But those portions of the biblical text that present themselves in literary form or genre as historical, as Luke indeed does by his opening prologue for his Gospel as a whole, and given the similarities of the other three to Luke, we assume that they did to a certain extent also, then we have to say no. The Gospels are not mythical if mythical means non-historical. Well, our time is about come to an end. And so briefly, before you leave, what would you tell people in our audience that are investigating the Bible right now but not yet convinced? Any last encouragement for them? Yeah, I would say... That is one of the most important exercises in life that they could be undertaking, and they should take their time, and they should do so thoughtfully and carefully, and investigating all sides of the debate, 
far too often I have had conversations live or in print with people, some of whom I've known, some of whom contacted me uh, unsolicited, who seem to wildly swing the pendulum between belief and disbelief based on every new thing that they encounter. In an Internet-dominated world, you can understand how easy it is to do that as each new bit of information or misinformation strikes uh, people one way or the other. There's nothing new under the sun, no matter what new claim some writer may make. These issues have been discussed and debated in great detail before. Take the time to see what thoughtful, believing scholars have said before assuming that somebody who makes some new claim has suddenly undermined the faith in a way that nobody's ever thought about before. They may make that claim, but it simply isn't true. You can find out more about Dr. Blomberg and follow his blog, New Testament Musings, at denverseminary.edu. You can also check out his books on any bookseller. Just type in Craig Blomberg and numerous books will pop up. Well, Dr. Blomberg, it's been a true joy having you on the show this morning. I am so thankful for your time. Thank you so much for being on The God Solution with us this morning. Thank you for having me. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. As you heard today, you have great reasons to believe all that's written in the New Testament and specifically in the Gospels. Your faith is not a leap, but rather a confident step based on data and based on evidence, especially if you're a student just walking onto Fort Lewis campus this year. I want to encourage you that you can be strong in your faith, not because it's just a random concept or a leap of faith or something that you'd be crazy to believe, but because it is the truth, because it's based in reality, and because it is reality. Statistically, 80% of incoming college freshmen that profess to be Christians walk away from their faith their first year at college. I want to encourage you today, if you are a believer and a freshman here at Fort Lewis College, please do not become a statistic. Plug into a strong group of friends that are going to encourage you in your faith. We run a group called Connect here at campus, and Connect is a group where we connect with each other and with God, and we have a ton of fun in the process. I would invite you to join us this Tuesday night at 7.30 p.m. in the amphitheater. We're going to be meeting in the amphitheater at 7.30 p.m., and if it rains, we'll be in the Student Life Center at that same time in room 119. Please join us. It'll be a lot of fun. Please get plugged into a group here on campus that will encourage you in your faith. Another way to stay strong in your faith at college is to get plugged into a local church. A local church is going to provide a perspective that is broader than you'll find right here on campus. There will be people of different ages and backgrounds and people with a lot of wisdom and maturity that can help you in your walk with God. So I would encourage you to check out New Hope this morning. I'm here in the studio with Rob Alexander, one of the pastors at New Hope, and he'd love to meet you and invite you to the church. Thanks, Nate. We certainly want to welcome all college students to come visit us at New Hope any Sunday morning. We meet at a popular place here in town, the Storyteller Theater over by the um, Durango Mall. Two services, 8.30 and 10 a.m. We're casual and contemporary, I would say, Nate. 
stylistically. So we're going to have folks in there in shorts and flip-flops. So just come as you are. Welcome, students. Come see us. Uh, you can look us up at newhopedurango.com. We'd love to meet you and hope to see you soon. No matter who you are, Jesus loves you. The Bible tells us that you are special to God. You are not just a face in the crowd. The Bible tells us that God is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The only problem is the Bible says that we're sinful, and sin always separates friendships. Sin always separates relationships. Jesus came, though, God, in a human body. He lived a perfect life that I never could have lived. And then he died on the cross, and he paid for all of my sins and all of your sins so that anyone who would put their trust in him would be adopted into his family and would have that father-son relationship, that relationship that's closer than any brother could ever be. That's what God desires with you this morning, and I would ask you this morning to stop whatever you're doing right now and simply say, I trust you, Jesus. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. The Bible tells us that if you believe that and that if you confess that with your mouth, he will come in, and you can be guaranteed that you will have an eternity with him in heaven. So come to Jesus this morning. For all you freshmen that are just stepping foot on campus, have a great first week of classes, and hopefully we see you at Connect on Tuesday. Thanks again for listening to The God Solution. Have a great Sunday.